Welcome to the Dare to Move podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Wood, and this is a high energy show. This season, season three, we're talking all things team, collaboration, and how to take aligned action after the stillness work. Tune in for passionate conversations from trailblazers and innovators, my own personal coaching insights, and honestly, who knows? Because this show is where anything goes. It's unscripted and all for you. Welcome back to the Dare to Move podcast. I'm so excited, you guys. This is one of those meant-to-be episodes that is was perfectly timed, of course, and I know it's going to leave you with, um, I don't know how to say this, support, mental models, encouragement, understanding um, around the topic of anxiety that I simply can't give you. Because um, as we're going to talk about today, the way that we all experience anxiety is so personal. And so when I share my thoughts on anxiety and my experience, I know I can help people that have similar ones. And, and maybe people who don't, but I can support people to the extent that they relate and understand from my experience. And our amazing guest today, Wendy Tamas Robbins, has not only overcome and found freedom with her anxiety, but she's written an incredible book about it called The Box, An Invitation to Freedom from Anxiety. And you can pre-order it now. You can check out um, all of where to buy it and pre-orders, all of that uh, in the show notes. And she has, she's just, she's so vulnerable. She's so open. She has just an incredible way of explaining what it's been like for her. And what I found really interesting was that it's pretty much been a lifelong thing. Uh, And that may resonate with some of you guys. Whereas I'm like, you know, I may be able to track it back to childhood, but a lot of my awareness around anxiety uh, came to me around that college point. So I am just so grateful that she reached out. She and I connected, um, gosh, almost a year ago now, author to author, because she was writing this book and she's a coach. Um, She's also an attorney. I'm actually going to read to you from her bio because it's remarkable and will give you a sense of just who she is in her, um, I know we talk about being versus doing, but in her doing this because it's, it's incredible. So Wendy Tamas Robbins is an attorney, author, speaker, anxiety coach, and self-proclaimed professional panic attacker. After living with a variety of anxiety and panic disorders for almost 40 years, she's now anxiety-free. Not because she's completely free of anxiety, but because it no longer controls her. I love that, by the way. She's traded living in resistance for building resilience. Her fear now, her fears now fuel a life not only beyond her diagnosis, but beyond her dreams. On her path to recovery, she discovered a restorative inner peace and reclaimed her authentic power. She's passionate about helping others who are hiding their fears behind destructive perfectionism and accommodating their anxiety and help them find the same freedom. What I love about this interview is that she really just, again, walks us back in time through the different ways she distracted herself from anxiety and the different ways that anxiety showed up in her life. And I just want to say a huge thank you to her again, because I know that's not easy. And the way that she's able to share um, 
in a way that is helpful and neutral is also just, I want to highlight for the listeners, a way that she embodies the beingness of being the watcher, the witness, and um, the observer of her experience. It's not taking her back into her triggers or activations. You know, to be honest, we probably could have spoken for two more hours because um, based on all of the content we have gone through on this podcast with triggers and being activated and all of that, um, it's there's so much here. So I encourage all of you to stay connected with her. Um, you can check out her website, uh, wendytamisrobbins.com. You can get there in the show notes uh, or on Instagram, uh, wendy underscore tamis underscore robbins. Uh, also in the show notes to just be, um, you know, following someone who's offering so much support in this arena of mental health advocacy. So just to continue on a little bit more with her bio, um, when Wendy hit rock bottom, it was actually hearing other people's stories that she says saved her life. So now she shares her own story to be an example of what's possible. Um, and that is why she's written this book, why she's doing podcasts, all of the things. Um, her unique coaching draws from her personal experience while finding common and relatable ground. Her balanced approach utilizes both practical thought and holistic mind-body work while believe, keeping a sharp focus on the goal, imagining your bo- most beautiful life beyond anxiety, believing it can be true, deciding you are worthy of it, and ultimately manifesting it. So you guys are like, Okay. Yep. I'm in this episode's for me. Cause you guys know, we talk all about manifesting on this episode or on this episode on, uh, this podcast and about really doing the vision work to believe in the future we are creating. So finally, to wrap up um, Wendy's bio, despite her anxiety, Wendy earned a scholarship and worked her way through Dartmouth College where she competed on the varsity track and field team. After graduating law school, she began her career as a corporate tax and finance attorney working to create and preserve affordable housing and provide social impact financing and public welfare investments to underserved communities. She and her husband, David, live on the North Shore of Massachusetts with his two teenage children. She enjoys tennis, skiing, yoga, cycling, traveling, and race car driving. So she is full of life and energy and you have to imagine you you would need that to write a book and be a practicing attorney and a coach. So I'm just excited for you guys to hear her grounded presence and her wisdom. And I do hope that you check out her website. And you guys know it's sort of my job to direct you guys to find these people that I have on. But um, I really mean that because she has something on her website right now or that will be dropping very soon, um, depending on when you're listening, for alcohol and anxiety. And we cover um, that a lot in this episode because um, I, I, you know, first began um, drinking alcohol in college and that is when I began experiencing anxiety. And so if you uh, have also noticed um, a link between your alcohol consumption and anxiety, this will be really helpful for you. So definitely go to her website, look for that program, Um, reach out to her on Instagram if you can't find it, because I do think that will be a really, really helpful resource for all of you guys. So humongous thank you to Wendy for reaching out. You know, I felt called to record this very quickly and just get it done because, um, 
I believe in timing. I believe in synchronicity and it's like, okay, we've known each other for a year. And then when she reached out, I was like, this is just it. This is it. This is the time. Somebody out there, uh, many people I'm sure need this. So I hope you all enjoy and definitely listen all the way through the end. We start talking about where to find her and her resources, um, you know, towards the end. But then we, she talks about this kind of three phase process of getting through anxiety of past, present, future. And I love the mental model. So definitely listen all the way through. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so grateful um, that you guys uh, trust this platform and come back to listen to all these incredible people. So thank you so much. And without further ado, I introduce Wendy Thomas Robbins. All right, Wendy, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's so great to be here. Yeah, it's. Uh, it feels like we just spoke two seconds ago, but it would have almost been a year. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and since then, I've become such a huge fan, really. I've listened to so many of your episodes and secretly, I loved the one on sex, maybe the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I was yeah, so flattered. It was, yeah, it was really great. It was brave. I feel like we don't talk about that as women enough. And that was really, it was really fun. Oh, well, thank you. And today you're here because you're going to be able to shed light for so many people on other things we don't talk about. And I, I really believe give people some mental models for ways to look at anxiety, which is something mm -hmm. that I think for a long time, at least for myself, um, was scared. I was scared to really acknowledge. So, um, I'm very excited yeah. to dive into that, but before we do, I'm going to jump off with the quote you shared, which is really powerful. I love it. Um, it's by Jeanette Winterson. Um, and it is, she must find a boat and sail on it no guarantee of sure, only a conviction that what she wanted could exist if she dared to find it. So tell us what that means to you. It means so much in terms of the journey that I took um, to find my way to freedom from anxiety. Um, it makes me emotional just thinking about it really, because um, it's like I said, it's where I started. Um, and I had come to this breaking point where anxiety was really controlling every part of my life. And it was this moment where I decided that I needed to take matters into my own hands, essentially, because I had gone to all of my therapists, my life coaches, uh, read books, and nothing really said that you could perhaps live a life free of anxiety after having had struggled for 40 years like I had um, with a variety of anxiety and panic attack disorders and um, OCD. And um, so when they all said, you know, it's probably not likely that you'll get there. Um, I just decided that I'm going to have to uh, find out for myself. And that was this jumping off point where, and we'll talk about it later, I'm sure it was for me, starting to find my way out of this box that I had built where the box was initially a place to protect myself um, from things that triggered my anxiety, but it had really become this cage that it was like a prison really um, that I was living in. And it was really the first step of finding my way out of that prison um, that had given me such a, a sense of safety and security, but it was really a false sense of safety and security, you know? Um, and I knew that there was just so much more out there for me. So this quote about that imagery, right, of stepping into the boat, um, leaving that safety that's back at the shore 
in knowing that there's going to be these storms and these turbulent situations that could just tear you apart, really with no guarantee of finding that place that you're longing for, right? You just have no idea what's out there for you, but you still have this belief that really got me through um, this deep-seated belief, like underneath all of those shattered pieces of yourself that you see around you, finding that courage beneath all of them and having that belief that sustains you while you're on the water and keeping your sails up, you know, just knowing that there has to be more for you out there, that you can't be identifying with this mental health disorder for the rest of your life because it's just so limiting. Mm. So yeah, like thinking about just if she dared to find it, you know, just knowing that I could find that courage in that darkest moment of my life to really just set sail. Mm. Wow. That's uh, so much of what we've kind of navigated on the show has been about the known versus the unknown, like what you can see today versus what you want to see in the future. And I love this um, so much because that's a lot of what you're seeing is that you had to trust that there was something you couldn't see yet or that you couldn't know or that you couldn't, but you knew it's like this deeper knowing. And that's sort of what gets you in the boat to say, okay, even if it's a storm, even if it's hard, even if it's stressful, I'm still going to go out and, and dare to see because something in me says it's possible. And so I'm wondering what, um, before we go into more of your story, just if there's anything that you used as, I don't want to call it like a security blanket, but if you imagine getting on that boat, like, you know, was it like a, a, weapon of sorts or a mantra or something that helped you trust in the unknown? It's funny you say that because so much of it was letting go of my lifelines. Like you're asking, like, what was your lifeline that got you through? And it was so much of letting go of all of the lifelines that was, that were helping me get through the anxiety and the panic attacks and things like that. Um, I really, at the beginning I was given a transformative meditation um, by Martha Beck, and it helped me start to build a meditation practice. Um, I, I can tell you what it is in a minute, but once I got that space inside of me and discovered that the scariest place in the world wasn't in my own brain, you know, with my own thoughts, once that became a refuge. I think that that's really um, where I started to see transformations happening inside of um, my own being, essentially, and my relationship with myself. I started to trust myself, trust um, having control over my thoughts and things like that. Um, so I think that's really what sustained me. It, it created this this strong sense of peace that I had never felt before. And just getting a taste of that, I wanted more and I wanted to find out what that was and how to build that. And ultimately it was really how I reclaimed power over all of this. So wow. yeah, I, I think that would be my sustaining force. And you know, for some people, especially those listening, when you're in a rock bottom or you're in a dark place with your anxiety and your experience of anxiety, um, at least in my journey, someone who's like, oh, you should meditate. It was like, 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> like you just, oh my God, I yeah. had such a resistance to it. So talk to <laughs> us about, uh, that meditation you said, I think what you said is Martha Beck. Yeah. That first one. So I'm with you. I remember the first therapist I ever went to, um, in my twenties, I fired her immediately because she said I should meditate. I was like, you clearly have no idea. Like I just told you how anxious I am. That is the worst advice I've ever heard in my life. So you're fired. I'm moving on. (laughs) I I just couldn't even imagine. I mean, I couldn't sit in the car with my thoughts, like never mind closing my eyes. And it was just completely so foreign to me. And I still talk to friends now who are like, I want no part of it. And I'm like, oh, come on, just come with me. Just try it. So this initial one is, um, I give this to my clients all the time. I have it on my website too. So Martha was one of the last people that I asked the question, could I find freedom from anxiety after all of these years? Um, Could I drop the bags? I felt like I had a bag of anxiety in one hand and a bag of the tools to kind of manage my anxiety in the other hand. And it was just too heavy. I couldn't carry the load anymore, you know? She finally said, I don't know, but here's a place to start. And I was like, this is my golden ticket, right? This is, I didn't, I knew I wanted to take this journey, but I didn't know where to start. And she literally said, this is where to start. And so you close your eyes and it's an active meditation, which I love to give to people who have no interest in sitting there trying to quiet their mind, right? This is not a quiet your mind exercise. It's an active meditation. So you picture a horse, an unbroken horse running like feverishly in a ring and you use all of your senses, which we know is very grounding, right? You picture the, um, the dirt flying up from his hooves and you hear the pounding of his hooves on the ground and you picture yourself like, where are you? How close to the horse are you? Can you feel the sun? What's the day like? And you're just becoming completely immersed in this imagery. And she said, watch that horse run every day for as long as it takes until he stops mm-hmm. or she stops until the horse stops. So that is really, um, it was symbolic of your racing mind, right? And it was a place to kind of put all of that anxious energy into this horse. And I identified with that so much. And over time, it started to allow me to, because as all of that anxiety comes to the surface, you start to process these emotions. And some days I would be closer to the horse than others. And it was like giving me this permission to go into that healing space, like as I was comfortable, depending upon what day it was. So it was really interesting. And it took me weeks, um, until that horse did finally stop. And it was this like watershed moment. I remember just crying and crying and um, yeah, it was just really beautiful. And that was really, like I said earlier, the jumping off point to a place where yes, I could go into this meditation space and not feel ashamed that I wasn't doing it right or afraid of not, I remember being afraid, like, what if I never come out? Like, I don't know where I'm going in there. It's just dark and scary. And um, what if I lose myself? Or what if my scary thoughts come back and overtake me? Like all of that, I knew I could deal with now that I had created this space where I could actually just sit and be, and now I could jump off from there. That is a really beautiful meditation. I've never heard of anything like it. And 
um, I'm studying right now the, the root, the chakra system. And, um, one of the animals it, that represents the root chakra is the horse. So I love that you brought that up of how grounding horses mm-hmm. are and the hooves pounding the earth. And that's really what, um, I think can be scary, or I don't want to say off-putting about meditation, but I guess because, the word that we hear a lot is mindfulness. And when you're in an anxious, the last thing you want to do is be in your mind. So I wish that they marketed meditation, a little bit of like getting out of your mind and into your body, (laughs) because, you know, the visualization that you just gave is amazing. And that, but also like sometimes just walking in nature helps me ground as well. Um, I, I really do think that that meditation, I hope people, you know, just rewind us and pause this episode and, and go listen to that, that you just explained, because that was incredible. And before we go too much into anxiety, because I really do want to just learn from your journey and and have the listeners get something else to grasp if they're struggling. Um, let's ask the, the question that we always ask all of our listeners, which is who are you before your work, before your labels, titles, who are you as Wendy? Ooh, before my labels, um, the first thought that, oh, the first word that comes up to mind is warrior. Um, I love alliteration, which you'll, I'm sure you'll find throughout this whole thing. Uh, but um, yeah, I feel like that's who I've been from the start and who, uh, who I really tried to tap into along the way. Like, I think that's my, um, that's my strongest identification. Mm, I love that. And uh when you, you know, the listeners know because I read your bio, but you would be what society would call a high performer, right? Attorney, athlete, went to a great school, um, has a family, all these things. You've sort of, you have this list of achievements. And so the first question um, that comes to my mind um, as sort of an achiever myself is how did you know, or what was it about your experience in the day-to-day of achieving the degrees and the accolades uh, that made you realize like, this isn't right. Like this isn't how I want to be experiencing my life. Um, You mentioned OCD earlier. We're kind of talking through anxiety here. What was it that kind of tipped you off? um, And was it as early as childhood or was it more like in your twenties? So where the anxiety started yeah. How did you know that like, this is like, okay, on paper, I'm a track athlete. I'm in law school, but I don't feel. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the anxiety started, um, when I was six years old. So, um, I knew things weren't right then when I had, um, my first panic attack and they sort of, uh, never stopped after that. Um, it all seemed right in a way because quick, so the quick story where it really started, um, my parents bought a refrigerator when I was six years old and they left the cardboard box in the living room for the kids to play in. And I had an older sister and a younger brother and I was the only one who really took the bait and I would play in that box. And then really I was escaping in that box and um, hiding in it because my family was very volatile during those years and people were screaming and dishes were breaking and doors were slamming. And I felt like that was my safety. Um, It was a place that I could be, you know, away from and protect myself from all of that. And I felt like I was the only one that could fit in there, like me and God, you know? And so 
as I took that mental construct with me over the years, creating, you know, creating those walls and building them, um, a lot of that helped me uh, protect myself really from those scary thoughts and from the triggers that I knew certain things, I was making lists at a very young age, all of the things that would trigger anxiety for me because I had so many phobias at that age. And then later in like middle school when the intrusive thoughts and the OCD began. Um, that was really when I had my first bout of uh, dissociation in the fifth grade and things I just couldn't tell other people and get help for. So what I did instead of that was I started feeling so broken on the inside that I wanted to create this sense of perfection on the outside, right? A lot of people fall into that perfectionism um, and really it becomes destructive perfectionism over the years. But I thought if I performed well, and if I, um, you know, created this perfect image of a, of a picture perfect box on the outside that no one would dig any deeper and understand really how broken I was on the inside. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's sort of, you know, how, but there's this other side to it too, that I felt like that warrior was kind of always there. Like I was still fighting for myself and I still wanted these things. It wasn't always just to mask the anxiety. So they were kind of these two forces working together. I was like, okay, this is really what I want, but it's also going to serve this other greater purpose where nobody's, people are going to look at this bright, shiny object and not even look below the surface. So mm. yeah, they were really working for me and against me in, in different ways. Wow. And with, um, kind of what we were talking about earlier with meditation and this idea of, I don't even want to go into my own mind. Um, what I, what that made me think of was this idea of distraction. And I think, um, whether someone feels like they're suffering from anxiety or not, our, um, our society is, um, focus is so busy. Like, right. It's like, Oh, I need to do this. And then I need to do this. And I don't have time to be still. And I think COVID obviously, uh, could have changed that for some people, but, uh, if your achievements and all the things you did truly want, but also served as a way to, uh, make a bright, shiny thing for people to see, uh, what else were, were those the distractions for you or were there other distractions? So for me, I can think of an unhealthy distraction of overeating to avoid how I'm really feeling. Were there other distractions that you had along your journey, um, to keep you kind of, uh, numb from your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I struggled with my weight forever, um, similar to you, um, until, you know, more recently where even when you find that goal weight, it, it's either coming from a destructive place or, you know, um, a place of love. And so it was destructive for many, many years. Um, so I, I distracted myself a lot there. Um, alcohol was a big, uh, a big lifeline for me for a very long time. Um, I think it is for a lot of people who have anxiety. So that definitely helped to numb not only the bodily sensations that are very disturbing, that um, it 
that's part of the OCD that I had as well, which was um, sensory motor obsessions that I had never heard of, honestly, until a few months ago. Um, I just always thought it was like a health anxiety. Um, so alcohol works very well to numb all of that. Mm. Uh, also puts you to sleep, which I had very difficult time falling asleep at night, shutting down um, the terrifying thoughts that had started, like I said, when I was six years old, those thoughts started. Um, and then the bodily sensations on top of it, like the throat closing, feeling every beat of my heart, taking my heart rate constantly. Um, you know, it's almost impossible to go to sleep when you're feeling like that. So, so yeah, there's food, alcohol, um, overworking out, just, um, I think just that sense of running always running from myself, from my thoughts. I always say, if I could have torn myself away from my own body, I would have been far more comfortable, you know, somewhere else. There was something inside of me and I hadn't learned how to um, gain that separation as the watcher, right? Like watching my body function, watching my mind function, watching my brain, and then learning how to control them as it's sort of like a video game, right? I was in that video game as that character, just running through those mazes, trying to find my way past all of these obstacles and fight the, the villains versus being the person who's writing the code for that video game. And once I found that I was the person writing the code, you know, that was a very different place to be. But um, I think, yeah, I think food, alcohol, exercise, um, I mean, I even, this is bizarre, but when I hit sort of a rock bottom, when I lived in Connecticut uh, all alone after law school, I had taken a clerkship there and didn't know anyone. And my thoughts had become so scary and debilitating that I decided to take another bar exam. I took the New York bar exam, one of the hardest, in, if not the hardest in the country, literally to distract myself because I could not stand being alone in my apartment with my thoughts anymore. And I was like, well, the first bar exam um, that I took in Massachusetts, that was so all-consuming. It was like, this is exactly what I need. Another all-consuming thing, right, to distract me. So yeah, I put myself through. Most people think they're anxiety-inducing bar exams, but I did it to actually kind of get away from my anxiety. So anything mm -hmm. on the way. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it, in order to help people become the watcher to use your words. Like I've heard, um, like the observer, the witness, it's all sort of the same thing. It's such a helpful frame of mind and to give listeners, um, some stuff to be attuned to so that they can become the watcher. I think it's really helpful that you just shared that. And, um, I, I do want to ask a little more about the sensory motor stuff and the body sensations. Cause we talk a lot about that. Um, but before we do, I have a question about alcohol because, um, part of, uh, call it step one for me and my own observation of my, myself and my journey of masking things and all of that was, um, so I didn't drink in high school, but I did in college and I had already developed over exercising in high school, like nailed that one. And <laughs> so I get to college, still want to keep over exercising. But what I found was alcohol. I didn't really think I was anxious. I just, I really didn't. I was, ah, I don't have anxiety. Uh, that's not me. But then alcohol did turn up the dial on whatever I did have and running was my antidote. 
So I would wake up from a crazy night of drinking and be like, I'm going to go run seven miles, grounding, escapism, like all, all the things to kind of self-soothe. Um, so my question is, while alcohol was something to help you numb, did you pick up on or notice that it made symptoms worse at all? Was that some that was that something that happened for you or did it generally just continue to numb? No question. It was, it became a vicious cycle, which I'm actually working on um, an article right now and putting a program together for it. Wow. There seems to be so much interest in it. Um, the minute I pitched it to somebody, they were like, oh my gosh, like this is so prevalent. And they said that, you know, most people don't really make that connection between alcohol and anxiety. Um, but it, it's interesting as I try to unpack it, even for myself, if you don't have anxiety already and you're over drinking, you will likely start to feel anxious just because, I mean, both physically because of that come down the day after, you know, that um, all the things that your body's processing during that time, especially dehydration and so forth. Like you will, if you, you may have your first panic attack just because of a bad hangover, you know, so there's that. But then if you're also over drinking, there's probably going to become some mental anxiety because you start to lose control or you start to at least question it. Why am I drinking more than I had set out to drink or intended to drink? Or what did I say that I can't remember, right? You start to, and your wheel starts spinning the next day. And if you start to get that sense of, I feel out of control at all, that's going to stir up some anxiety in you as well. So that's if you had no anxiety before, right? If you do have anxiety and you start to mask it with the alcohol, it's this very short-term sense of relief that has this longer-term detrimental effect that just is exacerbating your anxiety. For both of the reasons that I just said, right, it's going to increase those physical sensations that for somebody who already has anxiety, already knows that, once I start feeling my heart race or my, you know, nausea or whatever, I know that that's going to trigger a panic attack most likely. And then having those thoughts that if you already have intrusive thoughts and you have like a propensity for that kind of OCD mental, um, uh, you know, just racing and being hyper-focused and, um, kind of over-influenced by some thoughts, then once you start feeling out of control of your alcohol consumption, that is just another whole rabbit hole that you've created for yourself. Um, so for me, I called it the final frontier because I'd like to be dramatic. And it was really, you know, I thought my alcohol consumption would just naturally go down as my anxiety went down. And as I really found freedom from anxiety and this whole new life and experience and growth, and, you know, I had found this meditation practice and reclaim my power and I have all these things. And I'm like, why am I still drinking as much as I was before? Mm. And so over the past two years, that was kind of like my final frontier. Like I really had to, as I said, unpack all of that. And um, it was a really interesting journey separate and apart from the anxiety because we train our brains to do things and our brains are really efficient and good at it. And whether it's triggering your fight or flight response and having to ride out the wave of a panic attack because that's what your body does. And that's how we got here, right? Because that's our survival instinct. Rather than thinking it's going to kill you, it's actually saving your life. And once I discovered that, 
you know, that's just so empowering. And then the same thing with over drinking. If I had trained my brain that alcohol had saved my life over and over and over again, you know, I would have a severe panic attack and to stop it, I would run for a beer or a glass of wine and it would stop. So my brain believed that it was saving my life. So that's a very hard to, thing to give up. Even though you've given up the anxiety, your brain still looks at the beer and says, that's life-saving. Like there's nothing bad about that. That's a really good thing to do. So it's difficult to unwind all of that again. But again, it's so empowering when you can look at your brain as a functioning organ and say, no, I can actually control these thoughts and create new neurotransmitters and new grooves and new habits. And they can actually work for me rather than against me. Mm, that is so powerful. And we talk a lot about that on the podcast, but I don't think we've come at it from that angle because it really is, to your point, an organ that is trained to do a certain thing. It has its own habits. It has its own, it's always trying to help us too, to your point, survival, fight or flight. But we start to think that it knows everything and it is the answer when really it should just be something, like you said, that we can reprogram and, and use to help ourselves. Um, and I think it is worth kind of re reflecting on a couple of things you said, which is that, you know, you may start drinking um, and not have a history of anxiety, but just drinking is going to set off uh, on someone who doesn't suffer from anxiety a whole slew of events that can cause anxiety. And I didn't get that. And I, I would always feel in college when I would drink too much, this need to be around my friends the next day. And if I couldn't, then I'd go run seven miles, but I'll never forget when a friend, um, really close guy friend of mine, one of my best friends said, I was kind of complaining to him the next morning. And I don't know what I said. And all the things you mentioned, he goes, Oh, you're fighting demons. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, that's just what your brain wants to do right now. Your brain wants to do that. This is just a thing that happens and you just are dealing with it and you're in that. Pro and it gave me this whole, like, it didn't fix a lot for me, but it did give me a tiny sense of freedom in that moment to be like, oh, this is just a thing my brain is doing and mm -hmm. it's normal and it happens. And then flash forward and I start researching the gut brain connection and understanding a lot of this stuff, um, later on in my, um, in my own journey. But, um, to your point about body sensations, I really do want to spend a little bit of time there because you've mentioned a couple things twice, which is a heart, like a heartbeat feeling like tension in your body. Talk to us about that. I think you use the term like the sensory motor experience because, um, we have had people on this podcast talk about the trauma response and trauma being stored in the body, um, which I'm sure can also happen from a panic attack. But what has that, um, that part of the frontier been like for you to trust yourself and be courageous enough to get in the, the proverbial boat to actually feel those feelings? Yeah. What, when you say it like that, God, it, it was, it was as terrifying as the mental hurdle really. Um, because for so many years, I thought that I was just convinced I was dying so many times on a daily basis that to be, to find freedom from that is just so, like one of the most liberating things I could ever imagine. Um, and I, it's not that I don't feel them now still. I certainly do. They, for whatever reason, they still, they don't go away. They just don't control me anymore. And it's almost like 
I'm talking to a child. That's how I talk my way through them. It's like, no, this is, we're going to be fine. This is what happens. And then I move on now and it just goes away. Whereas before, um, like that glorious woman, Claire Weeks, who talks about um, the first fear and the second fear. And so the first fear is, oh, I felt something in my body. And then most people just move on and, or don't even recognize that they felt it. Uh, but when you become hypersensitive like this, then it's that second fear that compounds the anxiety and all of the, and it just exacerbates the feeling, right? If you didn't even notice that your heart was beating before and you start to really feel it, then it feels like it's pounding out of your chest. And then it starts to, you know, then you pump some adrenaline into your body because you start thinking about, wow, that's uncomfortable. Should that really be happening? And then all of a sudden it's that dreaded, like skip a beat, or it feels like it's pounding too fast and it's, will it ever stop? And I mean, I took my, my heart rate God, for years, like constantly, like I, I would have to have like a running watch on even when I wasn't a runner anymore, um, just taking my, my heart rate and my pulse. And it became, uh, it, it became awkward as a lawyer <laughs> in meetings. I would find very stealth ways to take my pulse all of the time. And it was worse when I was alone, you know, that I, I wouldn't take it as much, but when I was around other people, it would become so bad that, and of course, those are the most awkward moments. So I'd find stealth ways to do it. But then there's also, um, I have like a choking reflex that becomes very awkward if I'm in a restaurant or eating with people that don't, well, really anyone other than my husband, because now he just kind of laughs it off. But um, thinking too much about swallowing and if I put food in my mouth, will I be able to swallow it? Will I choke? Just having like that over identification with things that, are just automatic responses in your body, you know? Um, yeah, so how, I mean, early on, it created so much panic that, like I said, it just compounded and it became worse all day long. Um, and then I would start noticing other things like the size of my tongue and my mouth and I would become obsessed with it. Like, is it too big? Am I gonna choke? Or, you know, things that sound so bizarre to other people, but, um, and getting over that, like I said, it's really, I've started to, which is, this is kind of my mantra for just getting over anxiety, like, like globally, compassion and curiosity. I just bring compassion to it now. Like, of course you feel like this. You felt like this since you were six and look at the amazing life you've had. You've never even gone to the hospital. You know, like I just, like I said, I talk to myself like a, like a child, but it's like an adult. I talk to myself like an adult, just having compassion for myself. Maybe we, you know, we identify with talking to a child. Like, of course, you're going to talk to a child with yeah. compassion with adults. Not so much, but it's just really bringing compassion to the table and then being curious. Like, why did that happen? Did I eat something? Did no, I'm fine. And then I just make myself move on. I just control the next thought, you know? That's beautiful. And it's so helpful for people. And I, again, I just want to say thank you for sharing all that. I know it's not always easy. And um, when you say it out loud, sometimes you do feel like, oh, wow. Like you said, you know, it might sound strange to some people, but I know there's people listening right now who are equating your um, example of the size of the tongue in your mouth to how their feet feel 
and how that sets off a series of thoughts that can spiral for them. And I think what is important to highlight as well is just that um, something you said, which is it starts off as just a small like discomfort in your body. Because a lot of times we think it's like thoughts, feelings, emotions, you know, action, inaction, but it's usually a physical feeling first that then we, we have that recurring thought that's just a program. Mm -hmm. And, um, I use the example a lot that helped me, which is if you're walking in the forest, you might not have the thought, Oh, there's a tiger chasing me. You get like a physical, like I need to look behind my shoulder, like a physical gut feeling. We call it gut feelings first. Then we think to look over our shoulder and then we decide what, how we're going to categorize that experience. Do I need to flee? Do I need to fight? Like, am I safe? Um, and it is an interesting, uh, thing to navigate internally on our own. And so I think you're doing your, your work is just so helpful for people to have mental models and things to, uh, entry points to work with themselves on such kind of a, um, what can feel like a really scary journey. And one of the things you did just also bring up is your husband. And I had written down in my notes to ask you about what it has been like to navigate this in a partnership because marriage or not partnered in, in any way, I found it to be incredibly daunting when I accepted within myself, I was having anxiety and that was a big, huge thing. But then I was like, oh, and I need to like tell the guy I'm sleeping next to that I live with because I felt in my experience, I just felt like this is something he needs to know. Um, and I would love to know your take on what that has been like for you, um, to experience. Yeah. So I've had two experiences. So my first husband, um, was a wonderful person but did not understand anxiety at all, which a lot of people don't. So that's, you know, totally fine. Um, but, and I write this in my book, um, there's one chapter about um, my current husband. And I say, you have to really um, pay attention to who you're surrounding yourself with. If you have, you know, any mental health disorder, really, well, any, any, you, whether you have a mental health disorder or not, but in this specific situation, I feel like people are either fanning the flames or helping you bring water to put it out. And so I felt like my first husband, unbeknownst to him, he was fanning the flames because he was ignoring it, choosing to try to diminish it or say, you know, um, just dismiss it really. And when somebody dismisses it, it became not a safe place for me. It became another thing that I felt boxed in, like there wasn't space for me to express it. Uh, so I needed to both protect him from it and I still wasn't comfortable with it myself. So for me, it became a source of shame because it, it wasn't acceptable. Uh, so that was part of the reason that I left that relationship ultimately. Um, and so when I met my current husband, I was in a different space. I had already accepted myself as this, and I had made a lot of headway and a lot of progress. And I was still accommodating anxiety on a daily basis. So I felt the need to tell him, as you said, and, um, but I presented it as I'm anxious, but I still 
feel like I'm amazing. So, you know, here I am for all of it. Like, you know, just kind of having that confidence, like, not like I'm, I'm broken. I'm, but like, I I know that I have, I have more gifts than more uh, broken pieces to offer. And I'm working on it. And this is how I work on it. And I, this is my goal. This is where I ultimately want to be someday. And in him, I saw somebody who was, I was still working my way out of my box at that point, um, metaphorically speaking. And I saw him, a person that was so alive outside of any box I could imagine. And it was like this light at the end of the tunnel, like this hand reaching over the wall. Like I will be here for you. Not that he was going to come save me, but he was going to be there for me every step of the way. And it's been like that ever since, you know, and he was, especially when I took this journey myself, um, you know, he helped me with a lot of the exposure therapy at the beginning and um, would just be that sounding board. Like, what do you need right now? What are you feeling? What are you thinking? Why do you think this happens now and not yesterday? Just ask, helping me ask the questions that I needed to ask myself rather than questioning it in a way of like, well, why would you have this? Normal people don't have it. You know, like just that different space, like come out, talk to me. Let's look at this for what it is, which for me prior to that, it was hard to look at, you know, but it gave me that permission to then do a lot of the examination that I did on my own, mm-hmm. like by myself because I wasn't in that space of shame so much anymore. He wasn't like shaming me even without knowing it, like some other people had in my past. Wow. Yeah. Creating that safe space is uh, invaluable. It also reminds me of what you said earlier about compassion and curiosity. Like, Ooh, what is this sensation? How does this feel to me with almost like new eyes and new, um, potential like frame of, of thinking, because, um, it's not to judge. It's not to say it's good or bad, right or wrong. It's just, Ooh, what is this? And when someone else expresses curiosity, it helps you leverage that too. And, um, you said something really powerful. I want to highlight for men and women, um, but that no one is going to save you. Um, but there is something to be said about finding an aligned partner or friend or therapist that can hold space for you. Mm -hmm. And, um, I don't know why, but I thought, you know, I was in the, I was at a point in my life where I'm like, oh, someone's going to come save me. Definitely had that phase of life. And I also had moments where I was like, I can't meet someone until I am healed. Mm -hmm. right? Like, like you said earlier, what is healed? Like, it's not like you just, it goes away. It's just that you learn how to navigate this experience. So, um, I just love, um, what you've shared about your marriage. I think it'll be really helpful for people to hear. Um, you also mentioned your book. So talk to us about that. Um, what has that been like for you? You know, I think attorneys are always uh, known for being really, um, voracious readers, uh, and some writers, but I, I would just love to know what inspired you to start writing and for you to tell us a little bit about your book. Yeah. So it was about six years ago when I had talked about this earlier, when I asked that question, you know, could I ever find my way to freedom from anxiety? And when I decided to take that journey on my own, um, I knew that I was going to have to kind of write my way through it. It was part of the cathartic process. 
that I was going through because I had always written poetry, even as a really young girl. And that was my safe place. And it was how I processed my emotions and my scary thoughts that I couldn't talk to with anybody else. And I remember I'd like my darkest one that I still have that I, it's actually in the book because I put some poet, I put poetry like scattered throughout just because they're actually written in the moment that I'm talking about in the book. So it gives context for really like how dark or light it was at that moment. In my deepest, darkest one, I remember reading to my parents. This was my way of trying to communicate it, right? And they were just like, oh, that's a great one. And just went about their way, <laughs> you know, like oh. struggling to. Anyway, so I had always been, um, you know, processing through that writing process of poetry. And so here I knew that um, this journey was going to require um, some sort of uh, just writing. And I didn't know that it was really going to turn into a book at that point. Um, it was really, I knew I was going on this hero's journey and all of my favorite books were coming rushing back to me, like all of the imagery of the alchemist and things like that. And I was like, okay. Um, and so as I wrote, as I got to maybe the, the breaking point for myself, like as I had processed and I was healing all of these wounds and um, I started to see it materialize into maybe there's something here that this story could help someone else. Mm. I knew that, I remember saying to my husband, if this book only saves me, that's enough because this is why I'm doing it. I'm, you know, I'm trying to find my way back home. And then when I saw an actual process unfold, I thought, well, why couldn't somebody else go through the same process? Why couldn't I save maybe one other person? That would be, you know, twice as good. And then it just went from there. And um, it, it definitely saved my life. Um, it just even reworking it and going through the editing processes, like, it's every time I look at some of those pages, just remembering where I was and how far I've come. It's just for me, it was a beautiful way to express um, for myself my own journey, you know, just to have it in a place to, to hold and look at and then to share that with other people now is just. Um, yeah, it's just, it's really a gift for me to think that it could be out there in the world and, and perhaps, and not just save a life for people, you know, someone who's experiencing anxiety, but I really feel like um, it could be a great tool for people who don't know, don't have any experience with anxiety at all, but so many of us have so a loved one that is struggling and we just cannot relate. And we're like, if I could just get in their brain or their body for a minute so I can see what's going on because it's so hard. We don't have that vocabulary to even start the quest questioning or start the conversation sometimes. And I'm hoping that this has enough darkness at the beginning to give people, you know, a window into what it really feels like in these dark spaces and then the light in the second half of the book to show that there is a way out. And yeah, just to, like I said, it's like that window into um, the mind of somebody suffering with mental health for those people who just can't understand um, so that then they can maybe, you know, reach out and start those conversations with their, with their loved ones. That's really powerful. I, I was going to ask, you know, is this something that 
someone who's not experiencing it could read. So I love that it, you really see it as something like that. And I'm wondering, you know, as you have this realization of, okay, one, this is cathartic. This is healing me. Maybe it could heal others. Is that when you decided that it, cause you've mentioned having clients that, um, you may want to help people with this in a, in a coaching way. And did it make you reconsider your work and what is aligned and, and how has it sort of shifted your, um, outlook on your career and, and what you're, you're, what you're doing this is in the world? Yeah. I remember saying at the end of the book, God, I, and I had amazing, um, life coaches throughout this process. And I never really put the two together. I actually said to him, my husband one night, I never want to be a coach. You know, I just hope that maybe one person could gain something from this book. And then it was about six months later where I started to get a little bit more into social media and things like that, where people were forcing me to, you know, build a platform and all of that. And I saw just uh, the need and the amazing work you can do literally like with one post, how many people were reaching out and saying, oh my God, thank you so much for saying that. Or thank you so much for your honesty, or that was so raw and it hit such a nerve for me. And, um, that just triggered something inside of me. And I've always sort of been, I feel like in that space anyway, and that's what made me drawn to the law. I always wanted to be like the savior and the, you know, I think a child, like I had told that story about the box. Like I think I had that savior complex anyway, growing up in a very then when I also saw the book laid out um, in its final form, I could see a, a very clear process that I could take other people through that wasn't so specific to me that I couldn't translate it for someone else. You know, it was very um, translatable. So those two things coming together really made me started thinking about coaching. And then when I told my firm about it, uh, they were hugely supportive. They're very supportive of the book and, and everything that goes along with it. So that was amazing. I wasn't sure how that was gonna play out either. Um, so yeah, the trajectory of my career has really shifted in a big way in the last year or so. And then also just trying to remove the stigma of mental health and what it means and what it should mean and could mean, um, not only in the workplace, but especially in this country, uh, that's become a real passion of mine at this point. And just being an advocate, you know, going out there and telling my story and being an example of what's possible, that would have meant the world to me when I was in, you know, the darkest spots that I've been in, hearing other people's stories and having that kind of that light at the end of the tunnel. Um, wow. Would have, would have been huge. So I, I just want to, be that and represent that for other people. Yeah. It's, um, I think also why I love what I do is connecting with people like you who really show and share what is possible within our own reality, right? You have to see it to believe it. And I love chatting with people who 
are chasing passion and creating something that they want to create for the sake of what it means to them. Not because if I write this book, then this will happen. It's like, no, you were just being with what was true for you. And it sort of turned into a book. And then it has an impact on, you know, the world around you and your career can shift and flow and your firm is supportive. And I think, you know, especially speaking to, you know, my, my former self that struggled a lot with anxiety and, and listeners, you know, if, if you were thinking 10 steps out, what, what is my firm going to think? Maybe you wouldn't have even started. And so I think that's just really important to highlight that you just did what felt right and aligned and supportive for you and your soul. And here you are being able to impact the world. Um, and my next question is when you talk about impacting the world, uh, especially the workforce. Um, you mentioned, you know, mental health advocacy and, um, without sounding awful, this sounds so bad, but, um, I always wanted to be an attorney, but I had enough attorneys in my life that were miserable for lack of a better term that I thought, okay, I, it sounds really great on paper and I could help people in all these ways, um, but they're all pretty miserable. So <laughs> how are you sort of helping, um, that industry with mental health and what do you see as their, their opportunity for change? Um, so right now I'm working within my firm, uh, doing programs, um, geared toward different things, whether it's, um, specific to women or, um, there's an alcohol and anxiety program coming up in May for mental health awareness month. Um, and then reaching other firms and other, um, associations like trade organizations and so forth, um, doing panels and things like that. Um, so just trying to get the word out there and, and not the word like coming from the medical or wellness space, everyone seems to um, really appreciate the fact that I'm one of them, you know, like it, I don't think people really, there's not a whole lot of that going on right now where an actual attorney is stepping out and saying, I've been an attorney for over 20 years and you can't imagine the panic attacks I've had five seconds after I talked to you, you know, like, um, just giving stories and stuff like that. So, because there are so many people struggling and just to have that identif identification with somebody who is doing the same thing that they are, I think is hugely mm. helpful. Um, and I think there is, especially after this past year, a huge push to understand that mental health well-being is just as important as physical health well-being and that we need to shift our focus and not um, like over identify with what that means. Like they not, they're not capable in some way of getting their work done and being high performers simply because they have anxiety or depression or something like that versus a physical disease or disorder. Mm. Um, just trying to, I mean, that's, that was my biggest fear really, especially as a female coming into big law firms and feeling like I already had to overperform in some way. There was no, space to discuss my mental health issues at the same time like that was just so it, it just could never I, I I believed it could never happen and now 
I just got to that point where I said, let the chips fall where they may, because if I have to be the first one to go down and say, I got fired because I said I had anxiety, then so be it. Because maybe somebody will have a better experience after me, you know, for having brought light to that. Um, and it was the, like I said, the exact opposite. And I think in part, because um, there's just more space and availability and understanding for that now. Hmm. It's incredible that there is and that there are people like you taking the lead to, I think, like you said, just tell stories and have conversations that are real, not like I'm up here and I figured out everything from a medical standpoint and this is what you should do. It's more like, hey, I experienced this. It was awful. I don't want you to experience it. I, I think you might be. I think we all might be on some level and that we can come together and relate to each other on a more human level. Um, there's so much healing just from saying things out loud. I remember for years trying to deal with my own childhood trauma and I just wanted other people to acknowledge what I just said out loud. Like, this is how I experienced my life. Yeah. Does that make sense to you? And people just, you know, saying nothing and turning away or just to sit in a room with people, like you're saying, like not preaching, not even offering sometimes a solution, just saying, these are our shared stories. There's so much healing and it's just so powerful. Yeah, it really is. And I think people are going to um, get that validation also from your book, which I do want to circle back to, but my kind of last question for you, um, especially as someone <laughs> coming like I'm on the brink of motherhood. Um, how have you approach this topic of uh, mental health and anxiety with your kids. Um, I'm personally curious, obviously, but I also feel like there is a deeper understanding for that now than there was when I grew up. I really don't think there was um, any, I don't, I remember talking about mental health, but it was more like a word in our health book dictionary with a very vague <laughs> definition. And I was like, what does that mean? And then we just went back to studying the organ systems. So how <laughs> have you uh, really, uh, how has that, um, what has that been like for you? Um, so they are my stepchildren. I just want to make that clear. And because well, we only have them half the time, which is I shouldn't say only, we have them 50% of the time. And so they don't see a lot of it, frankly. And they were very, very young when I was um, actually still in the thick of it. Um, so they don't really obviously remember that, but I have talked to them about the journey. And um, I think it's opened pathways and of conversation that now they are more comfortable talking about their own stuff, their own anxiety. And um, I think in the future, it will for sure, you know, at the age that they're at now, they're just early teens. I think over time, what it does is set that foundation of a safe place for them to come to where you won't be judged. Um, nothing's off limits, you know, you can share whatever your deepest, darkest fears and thoughts and anxieties are, um, which I think is hugely important, you know, because sometimes it feels like you're talking to, into the ether, like it can feel like that. And 
social media or like, you know, what's a 12 year old going to say when you just kind of say, this happened to me, this is what my experiences were. And they're like, okay, good to hear. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I, I mean, I continue to do it and keep myself open to them about my experiences because I do feel like it's giving them that, um, something I, I know that they're making mental notes, you know, and in the future, it will mean a lot for them, hopefully to know that it's a safe place. Absolutely. It sort of, um, makes me think too, of like in friendships, uh, any relationship really that you cultivate, but, um, you know, if a friend shares something that's a little more personal or more vulnerable, it sort of signals to your brain, like, oh, we can, we can do that in this friendship, in this relationship. Mm -hmm. So then they know, okay, well, if she shared that before, then when, if this happens, you know, when something does happen for them, they know they can come to you and they know that they can share that. And that it's all neutral and it's all shareable, Mm -hmm. um, which I think is incredible because I still go back to that moment that I had, um, I know I don't remember much or what we were doing or where we were going. I just remember we were at a gas station. That's all it really stands out. And I had to, I, I just felt like it's now or never. I have to tell my, he wasn't my fiance yet, but I have to tell him that I'm experiencing this. And luckily it was well received, but it's scary to, um, mm-hmm. have those conversations with people. So, um, bringing it back to your book, um, tell people what you're most excited about for this book, um, where they can find it, what it's called, all of the things. I'm most excited about, I was most excited about the cover now, that I love it. <laughs> you know, like just, um, it just made it so real for me. Uh, but I do love sharing it. I love sharing um, the message of hope because it's it, it makes me emotional just thinking about it, like how many years I had searched for something like that. And so for me, it's really like giving a gift over and over and over again. And that's what's on the front of the book. Like that's the cover. It's hands reaching out this box because it's called the box and it's an invitation to freedom from anxiety. So it is like my gift to all of these other people that are suffering and, um, you know, having a hard time. And so I guess that's my favorite part of it. Um, I love that. So yeah, the title, the box, um, an invitation to freedom from anxiety. It's available. It's going to be available in just a few days, uh, May 25th, but it's available for pre-order now, um, online where all books are sold, um, you know, Amazon, et cetera. And yeah, that's amazing. And, um, where can people find you? How can they access you? I would love for them to check out, um, the program you were mentioning too, about, um, alcohol and anxiety. Yeah. So, um, that's going to be available, um, yeah. In just a few weeks from now too. So that will be on my website, um, come June. And then my website is wendytamisrobbins.com, which, um, and some like that meditation that we talked about before, 
There's also a great post in there around just the biology of what happens in your body when your brain falls into fight or flight and you start that panic attack. Um, it's called um, Confessions of a Professional Panic Attacker. So it goes through one of my most recent and really severe panic attacks that you know happened after I found freedom from anxiety, like just to show that you're never actually, it, it, you could always be susceptible to having anxiety, panic attacks, what have you. But um, when you understand what's really going on, I think something like that's really helpful. Um, and then other great tidbits in there, other blogs, other meditations. And um, yeah, just a, there's my little treasure trove of gifts in there. <laughs> I love it. And I also think uh, to that last point about confessions of a professional uh, panic attacker, uh, I think, you know, there's something freeing about knowing that that it will keep happening and that you can get through it. There's something mm -hmm. about that versus like this arduous, like I have to, to clear it all and, and it has to all be gone and never happen again. Because then if you are thinking in that polarity, then it is like, there's always a fear of a, well, what if it does, but it's like, exactly. no, it probably will. And I think that's yeah. actually helpful. It's, it's so freeing, right? That's part of the freedom from anxiety. It doesn't mean you don't have anxiety. It means you're free of the fear of having anxiety. So it no longer controls you and it actually reduces your anxiety and your panic attacks, you know? Wow. So yeah. And, and now, um, you know, we didn't really touch on this, but I just want to make sure I, um, talk about it before I leave quickly Please is I talk about it becoming my superpower. And it really honestly can turn your life around when you turn your anxiety around and refocus it and use it in a way that I, I use it in, I talk about the past, the present and the future. So in the past, I used my anxiety to really shine a light on the pain points and the open wounds that needed to be healed, which was a lot of the work that I did in the book. And then in the present, when you can feel anxious and learn how to gain that separation and either neutralize that triggered response in the middle of a panic attack or name the saboteur that is kind of in that moment with you, right? Understanding who's talking. Like I always ask myself that question, like who is talking? Who's saying this bizarre thing to me? Like, you know, and then in the future about what track to take, and I was always shutting things down, resistant, not moving, not saying yes, right? Staying locked in that box. And now when I feel that resistance, I know it's a place that I need to go. And I'm going to, you know, dive in, lean in. And that's where you build resilience over time. And it's also where you retrain your brain that you experience this, whether you have anxiety doing it, you have a panic attack, but you live through it. And once you do that over and over and over again, that's so empowering. It's where you reclaim your power. So, yeah. That is incredible. And I think it's really, again, going back to like mental models, as much as we do want to get out of our mind, having something, some like mental scaffolding to thread some of the experiences through is really helpful for people, especially in the moment. Like, um, just, yeah, little things like there was someone who was on the podcast years ago who said, 
uh, she was an actress and she always said that, you know, before the camera rolls, they always say five, four, and then they, they use their fingers to say three, two, one, cause they don't want to have the audio compromise. And she had made up the like five, four, and then stop, breathe, believe was like her thing. And it's like, it stuck with me. And I think what you just shared, will stick with listeners as well, that there are sort of some phases to this and it's encouraging, especially for people like us who are achievers to be like, okay, there's some steps and I'm going to do the steps and I'm going to get through this to come out on uh, in a place that's much more liberating, uh, like you said, out of, out of the box. So I'm sure, um, that you share more of this stuff on Instagram too. So where can people find you on Instagram? Because we'll put that in the show notes as well. Yeah, sure. That's at Wendy underscore Tamis underscore Robbins. So if you just Google that name, you'll find all of the things. Beautiful. Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on. I hope everybody uh, goes into the show notes and finds your book and gives you a follow, checks out the courses on your website, um, because this is um, definitely something important. And I, I love the work you're doing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being here. It's great to talk to you and good luck with everything with the new baby. Thank you. 